This podcast is being republished with permission from Perry Marshall. Uh, this is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with Rich Jacobs, who has very recently put out a book called Finding Genius, Understanding Cancer. And the subtitle is 30 Questions, 70 Geniuses, 200 Amazing Insights. And it is quite a good book. It is a reconsideration of what cancer is and what ought to be done about it and how the research uh, should take a different tack. And somebody was asking me just the other day, and this was a super broad question. He wasn't looking for any particular answer. He said, so what are some good books you've read lately? And uh, I mentioned a couple, and this was one of them. And, uh, you know, it would be very easy for somebody's cancer book not to make that list. So I, I think it was a compliment to you, Rich. Thank you. That I said that. And so, Rich, welcome. Glad you're here. Yeah. Thank you, Perry. It was a compliment. I appreciate it. And I'm really glad to be on the line with you. Thank you very much. Yes. So Rich has, in the last few years, been running a podcast called Finding Genius, where he interviews an insane number of people on an insane number of topics. I think, Rich, you started this podcast because your appetite for conversation and information vastly exceeds that of most people and uh, right yeah i realized um you know all day i'll i'll be busy learning stuff and then i'll take a break and relax and watch youtube videos to learn other stuff and then at night i'll talk to people and learn more stuff so i'm always learning but it's fun yeah yeah and so um because he has talked to such a huge range of people Back in the uh, a few years ago, it was a lot of crypto people, a lot of technology people. In the last couple of years, it's been much more in science, cancer, virology, and a lot of related fields. He's very knowledgeable about the various views in these topics and commonly asks people questions that nobody else has ever asked them before. And so... Rich, I just want to talk about your book and how it came about. So why don't we start with, of all the topics that you are interested in and have been interested in, why did cancer push its way to being easily in the top five, uh, maybe top two or three for you? How did that happen? Yeah, I'm, I'm now 46 until I was just about 40. I had heard about cancer, but I just, I think I just thought, it, oh, it's, it's the sickness that some people get. But um, I was in a car accident when I was uh, 42 and I was run off the road and I got a concussion. And at the hospital, they did scans on my head and neck. And they told me, oh, you have nodules on your thyroid. I said, okay, I don't know what that is. You go to the doctor, you know, go to the endocrinologist. It ends up, I have thyroid cancer, which shocked the heck out of me. You know, when you hear something like that, you're, your insides liquefy when the doctor tells you that. So all of a sudden, I was like, well, I, I don't think I'm just going to peacefully make it to 80, 85, 90 and then die in my sleep. I mean, it's possible I could die right now is what I was thinking. So it just kind of like rocked my world. And I started researching about it and interviewing and finding out more. And since that time, I've gone into remission. So far as I know, everything's looking good. But my mother passed away from cancer and it's just been popping up all over the place. And I, I saw the stats and I've lived part of the stats. I, the stats, the scariest ones to me are that a third of all women in the U.S. and half of all men will experience cancer, which is unbelievably crazy, those numbers to me. Um, so now I, I see it all over the place. And it's something that affects pretty much everyone's lives. Everyone listening is almost guaranteed will know someone or unfortunately, maybe they themselves have had it. So it's a, it's a huge, huge topic. And that's really the, the start of why I got interested in it. So it's one thing to be interested in it. It's another thing to interview 70 experts and ask several of them the same question and attack, like attack the disease from a whole different angle. So how did it come about that you developed a point of view on this? Uh, as opposed to just believing whatever a doctor told you? Yeah, because of frustrations, for instance, with my own treatment. 
I don't want to get into too many gory details, but for instance, when, um, when you have your thyroid out, um, I didn't have chemo, thank God, but I did have radiation. Before I do the radiation, they're supposed to give you this injection that, that really ramps up any remaining thyroid you have in your body. If you took this injection with a normal thyroid, it would kill you. So it's kind of a scary thing to take this injection as they took my thyroid out because you just never know. So I had that procedure done once and I had to figure out the dosage that would be safe or not. You know, it was in millicuries. Um, I had to figure out the, the sequela, they call it, or the, the consequences of having this dose or maybe a higher dose. I had to figure all this stuff out. At the, the doctor, I asked him questions. They said, oh, well, we're not into nuclear medicine, so you'll have to ask the clinic. And then I asked the clinic, and they're like, oh, well, we don't know this because we don't know that. So going through the treatments myself, at least some of the treatments, I'm like, this is absurd. How do I have to be my own cancer doctor? And these guys are like, oh, just take this, just do that, and, and you'll be fine. And at a similar time, my mother was going through it, and she did have to have chemo. And I'm reading, reading, reading about cancer, trying to help myself, and then I'm trying to help her as best I can. And I'm reading, for instance, uh, it's a good idea to fast for 24 hours before you get radiation or chemo. So I tell my mom this, and she starts doing it, and she's doing far better than any of the other people in her group at the infusion center. Meanwhile, they're offering her donuts and saying, hey, you got to eat something. You got to eat something. And I'm telling her, don't, don't eat that stuff. But what I found so far, sugar ramps up cancer, almost all cancers. So here I am experiencing it myself and experiencing it with my mom that the medical profession is, uh, they're not on the up and up from what I could see. And they're just not knowledgeable. And that's not acceptable when it comes to your life and the balance. The oncology so department is giving your mom donuts? In the infusion center, yeah. And I've seen this with other people, too. I currently know another lady with stage 4 breast cancer, and she took a picture right outside the infusion center. The rack of snacks they have looks exactly like a 7-Eleven. No difference. Literally. Snickers, garbage. I mean, yeah. They, so I realized, unfortunately, cancer is just an industry that's it's there to make money. I mean, yes, there's good natured people in it, but it really needs help and it really needs fixing because they're, they're not helping nearly as many people as they should. And yeah, it's terrible to say, but a lot of people go to their deaths listening to the normal medical industry. And it looks to me like they're, they're really not doing nearly enough and they don't understand cancer the right way because they're not making progress. They're still irradiating, cutting and poisoning people with chemo. And a lot of them are getting no better results than they've gotten decades ago, which this is ridiculous. Donuts in the oncology ward. That's just, wow. Well, I guess that's, you just gave me the name of the, of the podcast for today. That's, that's wow. Yeah, um, no, I'm serious. hundred percent serious. Yep. All right. So help us understand the path that got you to interviewing cancer researchers on the finding genius podcast. Where did that begin? Well, so again, I was doing all these topics, that, like you mentioned, you know, 3D printing, quantum computing, Bitcoin, et cetera. After I got into the accident, uh, my focus changed. I was partially trying to make sure that I didn't die and then trying to help others. So I, I went into all medical type issues. I started learning about viruses, about cancer, about, you know, metabolism, about ketogenic diets, you know, everything. I started implementing a ketogenic diet, for instance, for myself. After interviewing, you know, dozens of people, and it did seem to help big time. Um, and again, I was able to help uh, friends and family with, you know, suggestions to them. With cancer, I realized, well, okay, so let me back up a little bit. So I had done at this point, probably 2,500 interviews, you know, including people in virology, cancer, etc. And I started thinking, well, the interviews are great. What else can I do to get this information out to the public? because I've interviewed in some areas, hundreds of different researchers. So I put together a book on viruses. And what I did is I re-interviewed the top people that I thought would give the best answers. And I asked them all the hardest questions that had stumped them and other people. So it felt like this was like a higher level of interviewing than I had done before. It felt like the Olympics of interviewing. And it was like really thrilling. And I got uh, answers from pretty much everyone I spoke to saying, that's a good question. I don't know. Or do you want to come work with us? 
mm. I, you know, I got that wow. from, from different virologists and cancer people. Because at, at this point, I had interviewed so many people, I was starting to see, oh, these elements in virology are now appearing in cancer. These elements mm. in bacteria are now appearing in, in, in plant biology. So I started seeing all these connections, and it allowed me to ask better and better questions. And as you interview more people in a field, you get to essentially get a street MBA in that subject. So that's what happened. And I did the virus book. And then I said, I've got to do one on cancer. It's a huge issue. And I, I got to do something. So that was the motivation for that. I'm working on additional books, but that was the motivation for the cancer book. So what questions showed up both in virology and in cancer? The number one thing I've seen is that people, unfortunately, are still stuck in this model of cells are machines and robots, and they have no level of cognition, they have no level of choice, none of that stuff. I saw that with viruses, I see that with cancer, I see that with pretty much all of medicine and just about all of science. And I think that is a huge problem. From what I see and from the people I've interviewed, cancer is very likely to be its own unique life form. I don't know when it becomes that. That's one question I asked is, if you are open to the possibility that cancer is its own life form, at what point has it become its own life form? When it's one cell, when it's a billion cells, when it metastasizes, et cetera, that was a question no one could answer. But the people that did believe that it was a life form and possibly its own really liked that one. The reason why I think this is important is you will approach the science completely differently if your adversary is a living creature. So if you consider cancer to be just this massive cells that act robotically, you'll think about these various therapies, which is what's been going on. If you think about it as a living thing that wants to stay alive, that can adapt based on what you do to it, which is what happens when you hit it with chemo, radiation, surgery, et cetera, and it tries to improve its game and survive and change and metastasize and grow and evade you, that's a truer picture. And I think that immediately fits the evidence much more closely if you consider that. Then your mind is open and you could say, okay, if this thing is really living, if it's its own independent life form, now I can ask all kinds of questions and think about all kinds of therapies I could never think about before. Rich, would it be fair to say that it's almost like saying, am I dealing with Siri or am I dealing with a wild animal? Yeah, exactly. That's one way to put it, sure. Yeah, Siri well, will only have a, a, a canned set of answers and it can't adapt and it can't change and it doesn't go beyond being Siri. But an animal can do all kinds of cunning things and especially a human being. I mean, I'm not saying that cells have the level of intellect of a holobiont like a, like a human being, but they definitely have a level of intellect. They do amazing things. As you, I'm sure you're aware in cancer, they can evade the immune system. They can change the characteristics of their own cells so they can migrate to other spots in the body which would normally be enemy territory. You know, if you're a liver cell, uh, not only are you, are you a cancer liver cell and the liver's trying to get rid of you, the whole body's trying to get rid of you, but then you go move to the brain and you're able to set up shop in this completely inhospitable environment normally and function. I mean, that's amazing. You're able to turn off the immune system and stop it from attacking you, but the person still has an immune system. So it's selective. <laughs> that's amazing. So the abilities I've seen from cancer, I'm not saying you go cancer, but they're terrible to behold, but it's incredibly capable of doing what it does. Well, yeah, you have to respect it. You know, 9-11 was horrible, but I have to admit it was a brilliant strategy, right? Flying the airplanes into those buildings and all the stuff they did that day. You have to admire the ingenuity of how they right. pulled that thing off. And I think you have to respect cancer in a very similar way. You don't have to like it, but you do have to respect it. And I also think you've hit the nail squarely on the head that this is the central issue, right? So we've had this pandemic now for two years and everybody treats, talks about viruses. Well, it's kind of funny. If you talk to medical people, in a scientific context about viruses, they speak of them as a material object. 
But in the public vernacular, and when people are not trying to be strictly analytical about it, they do talk about the virus as having a will, desire, a strategy, right? Like COVID is this Mm -hmm. entity. It's like, well, what's it going to do next, right? So they don't talk about the virus all that differently than they would talk about a dog or a cat or, you know, a nest of rats in the basement. Yeah, no, I didn't answer your question. I apologize. So cancer and viruses have a lot of similarities. Hmm. Viruses seem to be able to enter into cells and change them and cause those cells to do their bidding and affect other cells and enter into those and change them. One question in cancer that no one knows is, how it starts. And as it grows, yes, I know the cancer cells themselves multiply, but are the cancer cells causing surrounding healthy cells to be co-opted and turn into cancer cells? There's no real answer on this. You know, how to, what's the interplay between cancer cells and quote unquote healthy cells that are, again, adjacent to them? Or if I'm, again, if I'm a, a liver cell, I have no business being in the bone, but I'm there. How am I interacting with the cells there and setting up shop, and the cells, again, aren't attacking me, and I'm surviving in this super harsh environment. How do I change myself as a cell to be able to do that? It's incredible. There's, there's no way that this is random. It's absurd <laughs> that that's what happens. I've, I've looked at what's called uh, extracellular vesicles. These are tiny, fluid-filled vesicles or blobs that contain genetic material that are created in cells and released and they go into other cells and they enter into them, just like a virus, by the way, and they affect the cells and change them. I interviewed this one fellow that said um, he has observed that human cells literally are making virion-like particles. They're, they're not just making these blobs of, of extracellular vesicles, but they're making ones that have a coating, a virion coating on the outside, complete with spike proteins and all that stuff, exactly like a virus does. So I start thinking, I wonder if extracellular vesicles are just another form of viruses that are created by cells. Mm. Do you think they are? I think it's definitely possible. They have you know, I mean, incredibly similar characteristics. You know, EVs can carry RNA or DNA. Again, they're emitted by cells. They're taken up readily by other cells. They alter their function. They change their epigenetics. They do all kinds of things that we don't even understand. And in cancer, I've interviewed plenty of cancer researchers that say we're definitely seeing tons of EV communication in cancers between a primary tumor and the metastases. So I don't know if the primary is the brain and the metastases are like the the children, but there's definitely communication and coordination in cancer between the various sites that get set up. Cancer actually is is incredibly similar on a lot of levels, I believe, to, to viruses. At least in that sense. The third question in your book is, is cancer cognitive? What is a range of answers that you got from researchers when you put this question to them? Oh, you, you know, you always get some that laugh and they say, no, no, not at all. Cells just, you know, they give you the standard neo-Darwinist explanation. Cells randomly do this and that, and they respond to pressures. And, you know, that does answer somewhat a lot of the questions, but it doesn't provide a full answer. But when you ask these people, okay, how does cancer do this? How does cancer do that? Their only answer is cancer doesn't do anything. It just reacts randomly. So that's completely unsatisfying. And when people talk like that, it pretty much shuts down the line of questioning. Those people I got maybe a two-sentence answer from the people that are willing to consider that cancer is a living thing and that it has some level of cognitive abilities, no matter how alien they are to us, that's when I got juicier, more interesting answers. So that's why, that's why this whole subject pivots for me on whether, again, you believe cells are cognitive, they have some level of cognition, no matter how low or alien, and if cancer is a living thing. Same with viruses. If you embrace those and you're at least willing to speculate, a whole new world opens up to you. And if not, you just keep researching the same old junk, looking for this molecule, that molecule, and decades from now, you're not going to be any further along. That's what I see. (laughs) 
So, Rich, you often in your interviews give people permission to freely speculate. So if I said, Rich Jacobs, I want you to freely speculate, what does it mean when we say a cancer cell possesses cognition? And what do you project that that might imply? Go anywhere you want with that. Yeah. I mean, so one of the factors of cognition is that you can communicate your quote unquote thoughts to other entities that are similar to you. And that definitely appears to be happening with cancer. If cancer is not cognitive, it's just a bunch of random stuff. How does it form metastases? Why? And I I looked up various cancers. Cancers seem to prefer or have a tropism for certain sites to metastasize to. Why? Why does liver cancer tend to go to, you know, this organ and that organ and certain brain cancers don't metastasize and certain breast cancers, they like to metastasize here and there. Why would that happen? There should be no choice or preference. It should just be random, but it's not. How could cancer respond and adapt after a chemotherapy treatment that kills a lot of the cells and it it takes whatever information from that chemotherapy and it alters itself so that it can get out of, out of danger the next time. And it does it rather quickly too. How does it do that? Just dumb luck? I don't think so. So there's, there's just a lot of questions about cancer that just they're not answerable by the traditional models. So you and I would totally take the randomness thing off the table. I agree. It's a scientific cop-out is what it is. It's a dead end. So if we take randomness off the table... Go ahead and speculate. So what do you think really is going on? What does a cancer cell know about itself? Or what do you think it's like to be a cancer cell? I think that however cancer starts, it's signaling, it's trying to get resources, it's living with the enemy or the other. At some point, it's able to divide and create enough of itself that its voice is getting louder, it's voice share, is getting louder and louder and louder to the point where it's now able to essentially say, no liver cells, we don't want that metabolite, we want this one, you know, no brain cells, you can't do this, we're going to do that, we're going to take over this territory. That's what cancer seems to do. And I believe what happens is as more and more cells appear, however they appear, you know, they, again, they come from clonal lineages, or maybe they're co-opted, the cancer has to make all kinds of decisions to keep itself alive as best it can. That's like, why does it metastasize? When does it metastasize? How does it metastasize? How does it choose where to go? It's not just necessarily going into the local lymph and then the local blood and just randomly ending up somewhere. It seems much of the time to end up at specific spots. How does it communicate with its, its minions, its metastases, but it does. And what is it saying? You know, I've, I've seen experiments where, a primary tumor would be cut out. And then you see in the metastases that are remaining in the mouse, they all of a sudden kick into high gear and they change what they're doing and they evolve more different types of cancer cells. They wouldn't do that if they weren't seeing some signaling that's now absent from maybe the master, I'll call it, and changing what they're doing to start try to stay alive. So all these things point to a cognitive thing that again, wants to stay alive, that employs tactics, that changes itself to evolve and to get along with what's going on in its environment. So it's amazingly adaptable and capable. Yes, I know it ends in death often. And a lot of people will then discount cancer and say, oh, it wouldn't end in death if that was what, you know, if it wasn't alive, but yet it does. But still, I mean, while the, the person's alive, while the cancer is alive, it's really showing all the hallmarks of an incredibly intelligent collection of cells or a being. Well, for probably 100 years, there's been this prohibition in biology, which says you can't anthropomorphize cells and life. In other words, you can't ascribe to cells or organisms uh, human-like traits. And I always thought an interesting question was, What if your best guess is to anthropomorphize? What if the best thing to ask is, well, if I was a tumor 
what would I do? What would I want? What would I be trying to achieve? Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good way to think about it. I, I think you deliberately want to think anthropomorphically. I think it's it's absolutely vital. So, like, look, Perry, in my body and your body and every human's body. So, supposedly, according to these models, none of our cells are cognitive, but the assemblage of all of them makes us, and we are cognitive. Well, how does that happen? Yeah. Or all the cells in my body are just dumb, random machines, but not my brain cells. These magical cells, for some reason, they, they're the only spot in the whole universe where actually cognition happens. Well, why? That doesn't make any sense. Why would certain cells all of a sudden, poof, magically, oh, that's where you get higher cognition. But these other cells, no, no, they're just, they're just dumb. They're random machines. Makes no sense. I'll give you one other interesting thing I learned. So I interviewed a lady named Florencia McAllister, and she's studying the microbiome of tumors. Mm. Well, guess what? She discovers she was studying pancreatic tumor and pancreatic cancer. So she looks and she sees that a set of bacteria will coalesce around pancreatic tumors, giving them their own unique microbiome versus mm. the rest of the pancreas. So not only do we have microbiomes, it seems like in every part of our body, not just the gut or the eyes or whatever it is, that every part of our body, but cancer cells accumulate their own unique microbiome. And I think most people know and accept that the microbiome trades resources and metabolites with human cells. Well, who set that up? And I, I thought of something called, I call it bacterial economics. So if I want a sugar molecule and I'm an acidophilus and you're a human cell and I'm hanging out with you and uh, you want a short chain fatty acid from me in exchange for the sugar molecule, is it a one-to-one -one arrangement? Is it two-to-one, five-to-one? Who decides the economics of the trades here? but yet the trades happen. And how could you trade with something that's not alive? So this whole model just makes absolutely no sense the way it's communicated right now. I think that all organisms, bacteria, yeast, fungi, viruses, cells are all alive in their own way. They're all cognitive in their own way. And it's very alien to what we know, but these behaviors, well, they're quite calm behaviors. They wouldn't be happening if these things weren't alive. So I think at the root of this, is a assumption in science, it's deeply embedded in science, which is that all science can reduce the physical world to math, which if you're educated in physics and chemistry, you're almost bound to say, well, yes, of course. How could it be any other way? But math is just robotic. Math and algorithm are the same thing. And what you're saying is, a cell is not an algorithm. And this conscious experience that we humans know that we have, that's not just math. It, there's not a math equation that says what you're going to do tomorrow morning when you get out of bed. So would it be fair to say, Rich, that you're ascribing really the same essential nature to a tumor, a cancer cell, possibly even a virus? Yes. Definitely, yeah. If you just take it as cancer is not 100% predictable, and some people may say it's, it's very difficult to predict, yet it still has certain behaviors, certain types of behavior. Well, how could it have behavior at all? If it's random, it can't. So how would you describe the researchers that you've encountered who embrace cognition how do they approach the disease differently than everybody else? They'll, they'll try to answer why questions more often than traditional researchers. Traditional researchers, there's no why in it. It's like, oh, we found this new molecular path. And if we could block this or that from forming, you know, maybe we can stop the cancer. That's how they'll express things. Someone that believes that cancer is alive, they're more willing to engage in the why questions. But even then, every researcher, pretty much, unless they're independent, they work for a university and they got to be careful. The university's policy may say, don't, don't anthropomorphize anything. You're going to make us look bad. And mm -hmm. their, you know, their department may be on them. Very easily, they may not be able to get a paper published if they say something that's too far outside the mainstream. So the whole system works to keep you know, all the frogs in the pot 
I guess you could say, while well, the heat's being turned up, you, know, you try to climb out of it, they'll pull you back in. So I saw a great reluctance on the part of scientists to speculate no matter what they thought, but at least the ones that were more open, I could tell because they gave far more interesting answers and they actually would answer the question. The ones that were closed-minded just laughed and really said nothing. Well, oh, please, of course, that, that's, no, that's, that's ridiculous. That's the answers I would get. Oh, that helps nobody. You're supposed to be a scientist, not a, you know, a, a bully on the schoolyard. So chapter three of your book starts with a question, how does cancer first start? So how would you crunch down the answer you got for the average person? How should we think of the beginnings of a cancer case? Well, okay, so I'll approach the question two ways. I've asked some people, okay, with, with single cell analysis, which people can do now to see what's going on in a single cell, can you take a, a ball of cancer cells, let's say it has a billion cells in it, and look at all what you call the mutations are in the cells. And if these mutations tend to happen, let's say in a certain order over and over and over again, let's say, again, I'm just picking liver cancer. Let's say you're a liver cancer specialist for 30 years. You've seen thousands of them. And I've asked them, do the mutations tend to occur in a certain order? Like if you have a ball of a billion cells and you look at the outside of the ball, will you see certain mutations present that you won't see in the inner parts? And they said, yes, part of that is because the level of oxygen changes, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But you will see that. So I said, all right, can you mathematically back calculate and go back in time, you know, looking at a ball of a billion cells and backtrack it to when it was a thousand cells and see what it looked like and where they were? No one's able to do that. They all promised me that supposedly experiments are happening to do that, but no one's done it yet. And could you back calculate it to number one? This feels like going back to the Big Bang, just to give a weird analogy, but it feels like it. I don't think we're ever going to get back to the first cell. We may get back to a time when there is, let's say, a thousand of them or a hundred of them, and that may be very instructive, and maybe we'll approach the answer that way. But I don't know how anyone's going to get back to the first cell. And now as to explaining why cancer occurs, my conclusion from interviewing all these people is that, you know, we're out there breathing stuff in, eating stuff, et cetera. We get stresses on our body. We have toxins that come into us for whatever reason or not, you know, we're breathing in air pollution, we're eating bad food, whatever it may be. It causes a stress in our body, in liver, pancreas, wherever. That stress is persistent over time. And because cells are alive and they're adapting, the body is trying to adapt to this stress or this problem. And a chronic one over time, I believe that the body just loses out and the chronic stress causes cells to have to, to maladapt. And when that's been going on long enough, I don't know how long enough is, but long enough, I believe that is what is the start of a cancer. It's a forced adaptation that has become a maladaptation. And the cells now are using whatever they can in their toolkit to continue to exist. But now they've, they've come into a regime where now they're considered to be what's called a cancer cell. Who are one or two of the most interesting researchers that you've met so far? Who's really impressed you? One of them has now become a, a mentor, Bill Miller. He's been beating the drum of cellular cognition for years. And he has a, another fellow who, who you, you introduced me to, which is great, is John Torday. Yes. Um, he was a pediatrician for a while, a researcher, sorry, at UCLA. They had spoken to me many times and wrote papers about cellular cognition. So I think that, you know, Bill, for instance, and John have some of the most interesting answers, again, because they're the most open. And they, you know, they're right there in the thick of it, writing papers, making sure that the ideas they put forward still somehow get through, even though they're a bit radical and they slowly chip away at neo-Darwinism and try to present an alternative case. But even these guys, all the time, I try to introduce them to other scientists and they just don't, don't want to talk to them or, you know, they don't get back to them. And they're just used to being treated as third-class citizens in, in cancer research and in science. So that was some of the, you know, really interesting people I spoke to. And I interviewed you for the book, which is great. You always have a completely different tact on things than anyone else. So you were one of the first, which was really, you know, it was really great to have you in there. Again, just in general, the people that are willing to speculate and think, they gave interesting answers in the book. So I made sure in each question we had some of them 
And then we did have a few traditional answers. And you'll see when you read the book, your listeners, the traditional people usually have a one paragraph answer and the other people have a lot more interesting stuff to say. So that's how I classify it. So um, your book, I would say two thirds is about kind of how you think about cancer and what is it actually doing? And it's, it's kind of a biological approach, but maybe a third of it or a fourth of it gets into how do you treat cancer? Uh, what should a person with cancer do? What should they think about the options that they're given? So Rich, I've got to think that because you've been doing this, people are asking you, they're turning up and they're going, well, I just got a bad report from my doctor. What do you think I should do? So can you tell us what kind of conclusions have you come to about treatment? And what do you tell people when they turn up and they go, yeah, I just found out I got prostate cancer. This is very difficult for many, many reasons. You know, I'm not a doctor. You know, we all have to make these caveats constantly. I'm not a doctor. You got to consult one, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. So I always have to give those caveats because I can't be out there practicing medicine. They'll kick my ass. So, so I try not to do that. Yep. Actually, our, our family doctor, his one of his assistants just got diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, a real bad one, the triple negative. So what I did is I emailed my list. I have, you know, several thousand people on it. And I said, hey, I have a friend that, uh, you know, that has this kind of cancer, you know, any suggestions? And I compiled all those email answers. There was like 50 of them. I put that in a box. I picked three books of people I interviewed that I thought were really fantastic. Talked about like the metabolic approach and other approaches. Sent that to her in a box and I wrote her a letter, gave her all that stuff. And I said, look, I'm not telling you what to do, but here are resources and people that are offering to help. I've interviewed them. I think they're really excellent. And it's something for you to consider. I couldn't go any further. Yeah. I had, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want, if something bad happens, the family's going to come after me and, and sue me and stuff. So I can't really give advice, but I could tell them, hey, I've spoke to these people. Here are their ideas. Go check them out. So that I've been able to do. In terms of the approach, it's really scary when you're told you have cancer. Again, your whole world like instantly goes funny on you. And you think about it in the shower when you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you're eating dinner. I mean, everywhere. It's just constant in your mind. It's terrible. And there's this pressure and this fear, the pressure from the medical industry and doctors to do the normal stuff that they suggest. And, you know, if you have cancer, I know this, I've, I've had it. And you worry, if I don't do those things, what if I die? But there's these other potential treatments that seem to be a lot better than involve diet and this, that, and the other. Maybe I should do those. But you're in a dilemma when, when you have cancer big time. Because again, you're terrified. And it's very difficult to make a decision under those conditions. That's probably the number one problem I see. And if you tell your doctor and they're not friendly to anything different, they're going to scoff at you or they're going to get pissed. And they're going to say, don't listen to that garbage. And, you know, this is the standard of care. This is what you need to do. So it's a very tricky thing to navigate. When I had thyroid cancer, I still went ahead with the radiation. I still went ahead with the surgery. Thank God I didn't have to do chemo. But at the same time, I also employed dietary measures. I, again, researched, I fasted, you know, when it was appropriate. I went on the ketogenic diet. I took supplements, et cetera. And all that, I think, came together to help me tremendously. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult to parse out, oh, this helped, but this didn't. And this, blah, 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 you know, but I've been to places like the Metabolic Health Summit, where I've met, you know, a bunch of the great people I've interviewed. And walking around that summit, I mean, that if anyone is involved with cancer, I encourage them to look at the Metabolic Health Summit. Because if you go there, you'll meet people. And I have, oh, I had stage four brain cancer 15 years ago. And the doctor said I had six months. Oh, I had stage four pancreatic cancer. And the doctor told me 14 years ago that I was going to be dead within the year. So you see that. And after you see that 10, 20 times, you're like, okay, these people are onto something. Otherwise they would be dead. And I met these people and that really emboldened me to say, all right, there's definitely something here. It's working for people. So I've got to figure it out as best I can. Well, I have run into that a lot myself. So it's easy to understand why I would have people coming out of the woodwork and talking to me about it. And I, I keep running into people who 
they turn up and they say, yeah, I had stage three or I had stage four. And instead of doing the usual oncology thing, I went on this really radical diet or I, I read this book and I started doing this other stuff and I'm all better now. And so, so Rich, you basically did a fairly traditional cancer treatment route with your thyroid. Is that right? It was a combination. So I did some of the traditional stuff and I also did what's called the metabolic approach, you know, again, supplementation, complete change of diet, et cetera, fasting, that kind of thing. So it was both. So here's an example of how I think it helped me. So I started this about 60 days before my surgery to take out the thyroid. So after the surgery, the surgeon comes to me and she goes, you know, on the, um, what are they called? The CT scan, we found, you know, tumors here and there in your body. And when I did the surgery on you, I, I couldn't find them. She found some, but not, it was probably like a third of what she expected to find. And she okay. goes, I dug down into your chest. And I said, hey, stay out of my chest. And she laughs. She said, I dug down, dug all over the place. I couldn't find them. She goes, I've never seen this before. And I said, I think it's probably the diet that, that I was on and what I did. She goes, well, I don't know. What I said, whatever. It is what it is. I'm happy. That's good. So even I experienced a radical improvement in the 60 days before the surgery. And, the, you know, again, the surgeon was like, I've never seen this before. That's crazy. And that story I've heard from many people that have been affected by cancer. If they do the metabolic approach and if they're able to really figure out what's going on, they hear that from the doctors. Sometimes they'll go into remission. And the doctor says, well, no one goes into remission from this or the outcome will be far better or they live far longer. So, I mean, this stuff is, you can call it anecdotal evidence and scoff at it, but hey, I'd rather listen to someone that had a cancer I had and beat it than just some scientific paper that says, you know, this, this molecule influences that molecule. I mean, to me, that's a lot more helpful. So how would you do your thyroid situation any differently now than the way you did do it? Knowing what you know now, would there be any difference? Yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, jump into the surgery and I wouldn't uh, do the radiation. I would give more time to do the diet therapy that I was on and get tested you know, several times and see, is it working or is it not? I just did it as like, I figured I better throw everything I know at this thing, no matter what. That's how, how I was. And again, I was caught up in, oh no, I'm going to die type thing. I felt pressured that I had to get this taken care of, you know, as soon as possible or I was going to die. Like when I laid down to sleep at night, I imagined a, a rusty 55 gallon drum full of toxic waste that had spilled over and it was spilling into my, my lymph and my bloodstream. And that was the cancer. That's what I imagined, which is probably a pretty bad thing to imagine. So <laughs> one other funny thing is when I got the radiation, you know, I had to like kind of isolate in my room for like a week. So I watched this series Chernobyl on uh, Netflix or something. And my wife's like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why would you watch that when you had radiation? I said, I don't know. But anyway, so that's what I would have done differently. Chernobyl has got to be some of the best TV I've ever seen in my life. That, that show was unbelievable. Um, it was good, but it was probably a bad idea to, to watch it while I was getting radiation <laughs> myself. So. Yeah, I don't know. It. Well, yeah, I got to admit, okay, that's that's a bit much. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if we have a breakthrough in cancer in the next 10 years, let's say, where do you think it's most likely to come from? Or what approach... Yeah, this is this is a great question. It's it's I can tell you it's never going to come from, you know, Joe Blow that works for ABC Pharma that has come up with a new molecule that blocks XYZ. It's never going to come from there. Is it to come from a fundamental understanding of what is cancer? Where does it come from? How does it act? How does it interact with itself and the body and the immune system and cells? And that's where an understanding is going to come from. If you don't understand the basics and, and some of the whys, you, you can't just be descriptive and, again, say, like, oh, this molecule uh, does this, so we're going to inhibit it. That gives you no understanding at the end of the day. At best, it'll work maybe for one cancer in one scenario. So I, I know I'm being a bit generic here, but that's what really needs to be understood is, again, what, what truly makes a cancer cell different from a, quote, unquote, healthy cell? One, one theory that 
I got from one of the um, researchers is that just like we have, and I kind of thought about this too, is we, we have stem cells in all our tissues, right? And the stem cells are pliable and moldable and they can take up different jobs and differentiate themselves into different things. What if cancer cells are a part of us always? What if our bodies and all our tissues are always producing cancer cells that are stem cell-like, but something happens and instead of being a good guy, a good stem cell, they are a bad stem cell and they take these actions that aren't good for the surrounding tissue. And tumors do have cancer stem cells in them. They're not just like regular differentiated cells only. Cancer cells have a structure. They have different cell types and they act as like a miniature organism. If you look just at the structure of a tumor, that's what you get. It's not just a blob. It is a very sophisticated structure. There's parts of it that have a lot of oxygen, low oxygen, no oxygen, and yet the cells that are in them can survive in most of these conditions. So um, that's how I would think of it uh, in, in a very different way. And I think that's the only way you're going to start to solve anything is to really understand some of these whys. Well, Rich, I think you're onto something there because I don't know if you know Jin Sung Lu or not. He's a guy at MD Anderson and he's got this very elegant model of pointing out how a, the development of a tumor is like the dark evil twin of the development of an embryo. And in his papers and in his presentations, he'll, he'll show these side by side. And it's like, so here's the normal version. Here's the Frankenstein version. Notice like A is the same, B is the same, C is the same, D is the same, except X, Y, and Z are all different. And I think like the way that you described, well, you know, maybe, maybe those cancer cells are in some sense, they're there all along something makes them turn rogue, right? It's like when a soldier becomes a terrorist. Right. And if it, and what happens if you get a faction of terrorists that grow to 1,000, 10,000, 100,000? Now, all of a sudden, their voice and their coordinated action are really significant. Now, they're not just really terrorists. Now, they're like a, a, an, an opposing force that has its own generals and leaders and its own desires yes. and act exact. This is why anthropomorphic thinking is probably some of the best things you can do. Here's what I wanted to tell you and listeners. There's a reason why we look around our world and we see similar things occurring in different scenarios. There, there's a reason why when I look out and I see trees in winter, the branches look exactly like my lungs. There's a reason why lightning looks the same as my lungs. There's a reason why Roots systems in a plant look the same as my lungs and my blood vessels. If you look for commonalities in nature and you see it across different creatures, different domains, that is pointing you to something deeper that must be investigated. There is a reason for that. It is not random chance. These similarities would not show up across all aspects of life and even non-life in certain cases, unless there was an underlying structure and a reasoning. And I think Thinking that will, will help people deliberately be anthropomorphic in your thinking. Add it into the stack. Go ahead. I mean, think about in a, in a you know, random mutation type way, fine. But now also add in a completely different way of thinking. And you're going to get much further and better answers, which will surprise you. Bravo. Totally agree. Well, Rich, this has been great. Rich's book is called Finding Genius, Understanding Cancer. It's on Amazon. And... Um, 70 different cancer experts from all across the spectrum um, giving very interesting answers to very interesting questions. And Rich, if people want to listen to your Finding Genius podcast, wh where should they go to download those episodes? Yeah, we're on like 20 different channels. So, I mean, if you just Google Finding Genius podcast, where you go to the website, or you go to Instagram, or you go to TikTok, or you go to YouTube, or it's everywhere. I try to put it everywhere I can. So it's pretty easy to run into. Just put in the name. Well, well, Rich, I want to salute you for doing this. And I also want to compliment you on the comment that you get a lot of uh, the people that you talk to, because they say, wow, that's a really interesting question. Uh, nobody's ever asked me that before. And can, could you just comment how those questions, they don't seem that unusual to you. Right. 
like to you, it's like, well, why wouldn't somebody ask that question? Isn't that question obvious? So could you describe maybe how you came to be able to ask questions that are so obvious to you and not necessarily to everybody else? I think, and I'm not trying to like stroke myself and say how wonderful I am. It's okay. No, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I do that I'm not, I don't have to work in a lab. I don't have to apply for grants. I don't have to listen to my masters and, you know, be threatened to be kicked out of the field if I don't say the right thing. So, and I can, I talk to a lot of different people. Like in the world of cancer, I've interviewed far more than 70. It's been probably well over 200 but I honed it down to these only these 70. But what I see in my mind is I'm floating above the field of cancer and I'm seeing where Bob Smith is doing his research over here and Jane Doe is doing it over there. And I have like a 10,000 foot view of where all the players are working and what they're doing. So then you start to see the holes. Well, what about this? Well, no one's looking at that. Well, let me see if I can find someone that is looking at that. Well, what about this? What, also, all the interviews I've done, I'm seeing recurring themes, so I know to ask. I've done probably 100 microbiome interviews. So now wow. every time, pretty much, like I just interviewed someone on microplastics, and we were talking about garbage patches. And I said, does a garbage patch in the ocean attract its own localized microbiome? And they're like, what? Mm. I, you know, they were like, I, I don't know. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> you know, so that's what helps me answer these questions is like my curiosity, my desire to know, but also I've seen so many different fields and talked to like well over 3000 researchers that I'm starting to see recurrent themes. So I can bring stuff up that people won't know about. Like when, when I had my thyroid out, I said to the um, surgeon, I said, in 10 years, I want my thyroid back. And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, they're 3d printing thyroids and mice and it's working. She goes, really? I said, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping in 10 years I can get my thyroid back. I'll get a 3D printed one. She's like, oh, I didn't even know they're doing that. She's too busy. She can't know that, but I knew it. So that's what helps is just, again, talking to all these people, looking at all these points of view and being open. Why not think this? Why not consider that? It's not going to hurt you. And the more things you're open to considering and thinking and letting go of of beliefs that, no, it's got to be like this, that doesn't help you, especially in science. You got to be open. And that, I think, will help people a lot. Well, there's a lot to be learned from what you just said. Totally agree. Thank you very much, Rich. Finding Genius podcast and the Finding Genius Cancer book on Amazon. Thanks for your time, Rich. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. Thanks, Perry. I appreciate it.